Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Dr. Messner, please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Krista. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a partnership between uh, the Association for Molecular Pathology and Cancer Care, AMP, is a, a short version of the long title for AMP. Um, and um, today's program is titled Understanding the Important Role that Biomarker Testing Plays in Informing Treatment of Cancer. Um, it is part one of the important role of biomarker testing in the treatment of cancer. What you need to know makes all the difference in the world. And today's program is supported by Marathi Therapeutics, Stemline Therapeutics, Inc., and Pfizer. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, before the program um, gets totally underway, I want to just let you know that there are over 275 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Bahrain, Canada, France, India, Territory of Puerto Rico, Sweden, Territory of Virgin Islands and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call, and we're delighted to have all of you with us today. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing an overview and definition of biomarkers, predicting response to treatment, what are some examples of biomarker testing, and how biomarker testing provides useful information for cancer treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Carol, and, and uh, welcome to everybody on the call today. Um, Starting out with a few um, basic things that so we're all uh, on the same page as to uh, our terms. Um, the, I, I looked up biomarker in the dictionary at some point, and uh, it says this, that it is, one, a measurable substance. So I think in its sim simplest form, it's something you can measure. And then secondly, uh, in terms of cancer, it's a defining characteristic of a cancer. So you can tell, I think, by those definitions how uh, important it would be. And also it gives a tool to both your uh, care team and, and you as a way of uh, defining your illness. A couple of things about cancer. Again, uh, forgive me if this is um, something you've already wrapped your head around. But I, I think it's you know important that when you're Faced with the diagnosis of cancer, your docs have to answer some basic questions. I think the first thing, is it cancer? And it's 100% necessary to answer that, and you have to be 100% sure. 
After that, what's the site of origin of the cancer and the type of cancer? And that's where the biomarkers can be very, very important. Just a reminder, though, um, you know, there's still um, this feeling that somehow cancer can be diagnosed on a scan or on a blood test. Uh, with uh, common forms of cancer. And the answer to that is that in 2024, that is not possible. The only way to diagnose a cancer, a solid tumor kind of cancer, which is you know the topic today, is a um, material has to be taken from, from your body, from the uh, cancerous deposit, and looked at under the microscope by a pathologist. That is the only way to diagnose cancer. And I, I caution you all, you see some spot on a scan, you say, oh, it's cancer. It's not cancer until it's biopsied, until a pathologist uh, says that it is. So how do biomarkers help us? Again, it helps us not so much in the diagnosis at this point, but also, but instead determining the site of origin of the cancer because that helps determine treatment and ultimately the type of cancer even when you know the site of origin and that determines treatment. I think first and foremost, the um, most important characteristic or biomarker is pathology. And pathology comes in uh, some different different forms. The first is tissue, where a biopsy would be done. Tissues from the biopsy, uh, tissues from the, um, the cancerous, presumed cancerous deposit are, are, are examined. And that's called like uh, anatomic pathology or histology. It's a pathologist looking at the tissue under the microscope. There's a second kind of way to look at the cancer cells, and that is something called cytology. And that can be done in different ways. Sometimes they can stick a tiny needle into the presumed cancer and remove some cells to look at under the microscope. And sometimes there's a collection of cancer cells, things like an effusion, a, a pleural uh, effusion, a peritoneal effusion, a cites. That fluid can be removed uh, and the cells examined by the pathologist. But it's done in the same way. Cells are removed, cells are stained, cells look at the uh, look at under the microscope by a pathologist, and um, that that is how cancer is diagnosed. And that's probably the single most important thing in defining uh, the site of origin of cancer and and what's going to determine your treatment. It's usually done by visual appearance, and that is the uh, the realm of uh, expertise of the pathologist. But the pathologists also use something else called immunohistochemistry. And, and uh, forgive me for taking a quick aside to the world of biology. That I know biology may be a, a distant memory for your book for for many people on the call. Um, but just remember how uh, the uh, living things are made up. Uh, we have. Uh, tissues, the things that we have. We have a liver, we have a kidney, we have lungs. Those tissues are made up of cells, and the cells in turn are made up of proteins. The proteins are made within the cells of the body from uh, RNA. RNA is the uh, template for the proteins of the body, and DNA is the template for the RNA, which is a template for the proteins of the body, which is a template for the tissues of the body. So all these things can give you information, and they all give kind of different information and different information for different cancers, and I just kind of want to go through that. Again, the biggest one, though, is, is, is the tissue still. The pathologist looking at tissue, though, does something else. They have the ability to look at the proteins 
that are there making up the various tissues. And they do a test called immunohistochemistry. Many of you that have looked at your pathology reports, I think you've seen that they have uh, comments on there. And I'm going to particularly you know, focus on lung, some things I call TTF1. And for breast cancer, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2. For prostate cancer, P- PSA. Uh, and for a lot of different kinds of cancer, PDL1. These are all tests that a pathologist does looking for specific proteins and again, staining for these specific proteins and looking on the microscope. And they're usually appended to the pathology report. The next thing that is useful, and this is probably a little rarer than, um, and particularly for the lung cancer area, it's not used a lot, is RNA-based testing. Probably the most um, commonly used one is something called Oncotype. It's very often used in, in saying whether or not uh, adjuvant therapy needs to be given for breast cancer or additional therapy, and this is an RNA-based test. The other test, though, and again, particularly for lung cancer, is a DNA-based test. And what we're looking for there is a, is a bunch of uh, things in the DNA. I think the first one is, are there genes that have been altered by the cancer? Uh, and these are genes in the cancer, by the way. These are not genes that you inherited. There are not genes that you can pass along. The so-called somatic genes. And by finding those genes that have been changed uh, damaged by the cancer, it often leads to vulnerabilities of those cancer cells with those damaged genes and can lead to therapy. Probably the classic example in lung cancer is the EGFR gene or, or the ALK rearrangement. If the, your cancer cells bear those, drugs that target those abnormalities are very, very helpful. Genes are also helpful in deciding about uh, immune treatments. Um, If you have a lot of damaged genes, they have what they call a high tumor mutation burden. This is found in a lot of different cancer. You'll probably hear Dr. Benson talking about that shortly with uh, 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 colorectal cancer. Or microsatellite instability is another kind of variation on that theme. What that does is tells you about the sensitivity of your cancer to um, uh, immune treatments. Now, in addition to looking at tissues and testing of tissue, um, some of these uh, same proteins and DNA can be found in blood. Again, the same um, uh, things like the PSA, for example, that's probably the most commonly used blood test that can be used, and important uh, biomarkers can, can come from blood. Uh, CEA is another one uh, used for some patients with colon cancer and other cancers as well. Now, there is a growing uh, use of DNA in the blood. Cancer cells lose DNA, and it goes into the bloodstream. Cancer DNA is in uh, the bloodstream. Uh, And you can find that DNA and test for it. So for something like a a mutation in KRAS, you can find DNA that came from the tumor in the bloodstream. Uh, And that's something that can be very useful. It obviates the need for a biopsy. A lot of people call this a liquid biopsy. Um, And... uh, it, it's very, very helpful for some people, and it can usually be faster. The, the downside of that is, the downside is that it is not as accurate as the tissue. So for a given um, uh, type of DNA damage, uh, you find about three-quarters of them in the blood, whereas you'd find 100% of uh, damage in the uh, tissue. So what happens is if you uh, look at the blood, 
don't find a uh, damaged uh, DNA there, you then need to look at the tissue because it, it, it's just not as um, uh, precise as, as the tissue. So how do you use these um, uh, factors? And you use them as a piece of information to help your doctors choose the best therapy for you based on this. So these are super, super critical. The one last thing I want to say is that while these tests are extremely helpful, they are not the be-all and end-all. They are only part of your story. Your doctors need to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, how the cancer has affected your health, how the cancer has affected your body, the various imaging studies that you have, in these blood tests. And only by putting everything together can your doctors make the best choices of drugs, make the best decisions that lead to the best outcomes for your care. And I, I caution you not to focus on any one test that, that tells the tale. It, it's a part of the tale, but it's not the whole tale. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was a wonderful presentation. And and really stellar, and you did set the stage for today's program in sort of defining what biomarkers are and um, and explaining um, a bit about them. So that's really terrific. So thank you. Um, uh, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Albie Benson III. And Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Co Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing why the, why the molecular portrait of cancer is so important in informing your treatment, guidelines, clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments with your healthcare team, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join you all today. Uh, I want to start first by uh, making some more general comments uh, based upon Dr. Chris's uh, excellent remarks here. And so what I want to uh, emphasize is that it is increasingly recognized through technology including much more in-depth evaluation of tumors, that tumors are not all the same. Therefore, there's increasing emphasis on evaluating each person's tumor to create a biological profile using tumor from the patient's actual cancer or perhaps from <coughs> a metastatic site such as from the liver or from the patient's blood. Evaluating tumor biology is even more complicated because the tumor is just not one type of tumor cell, but for most people, a collection of different tumor cells which can vary within an individual as well as from one person to another. This phenomenon is called tumor heterogeneity and creates challenges at, as to which of the tumor cells are contributing to tumor growth um, and uh, also um, which cells might be resistant to treatment 
and also what drugs might be most effective to stop growth. There have been advances linked to the study of biology through molecular profiling of tumors, as mentioned uh, by Dr. Chris, including next-generation sequencing. And as Dr. Chris emphasized, it's a very important newer area of technology advancement is the ability to locate circulating tumor DNA in the patient's blood, looking for potential treatment targets, but also the potential to evaluate patients to see who might be most likely to recur from their original cancer and if a treatment's being effective. This type of research is now actively being conducted through clinical trials, and we would certainly urge people to participate in such whenever possible. <coughs> in terms of clinical trials, oncology is actually a bit unique because although clinical trials are conducted throughout medicine, in oncology, clinical trials have, all, uh, have uh, often been fully integrated as a component of standard of care for cancer. There are many different types of trials. There are screening trials, prevention trials, procedure trials, such as looking at different forms of imaging or scans, treatment trials, quality of life trials, symptom management trials, uh, and as well as survivorship trials. And it's important uh, also to recognize that many of these trials include tissue evaluation which we hope will enhance our better understanding of tumor biology. <clears throat> it's important to ask your oncologist about clinical trials and to know what might be the standard of care. Is there more than one treatment option? Or are there very limited treatment options? And in fact, a clinical trial may be the best choice. You should also ask, in terms of a clinical trial, what are the questions being asked in the trial? Is the trial comparing treatments that are already in use or a treatment that may be uh, including commercial drugs using uh, such a new combinations or perhaps a new agent that may be added to a standard treatment? Or it may be a very experimental approach, especially when all standard treatments have been uh, tried. Um, also, these trials, as I mentioned, may be looking at your tumor for specific factors, such as genomic changes that might be associated with benefits from a specific treatment, such as a targeted drug or immunotherapy. You also need to know the potential side effects and how such could affect you uh, compared to uh, other treatments. I was also asked to uh, speak a little bit about uh, telehealth. Now, telehealth has actually been around for years, but particularly because of COVID, the use has vastly expanded and is now much more formalized and can, and can actually replace or supplement an office visit. It is important to know that you are being charged just as you would for an office visit. And you also need to know if there are any limitations 
uh, placed on telemedicine by your insurance company. Nonetheless, uh, tele telemedicine is increasingly uh, being used, and much can be discussed during the telemedicine visit, uh, which can also help to fully in your, inform your clinician as to how you're doing, how you are tolerating treatment, and what symptoms you may be experiencing. With video conferencing, it also might be possible to conduct a limited physical exam, such as looking at your skin, eyes, or mouth. For a telemedicine visit, you should prepare as you would for an office visit. You should write down questions, write down your symptoms, have family members or friends join in, Make sure to review recent labs or procedures or scan results during the visit. Uh, also review when is a telemedicine visit adequate and when an office visit should resume. If there are planned delays in procedures or treatments or tests, or if you were requesting such, make sure to discuss the risks versus benefits if there are delays. You don't want to jeopardize the potential benefits of evaluation or treatments by delays. And it's also imperative to discuss how long a delay uh, might be uh, considered safe. In, in terms of questions overall for your uh, healthcare team, um, as I mentioned, um, you should talk with friends and family and compose a list of questions. Uh, you should also take notes during your visits or have someone do so for you. So when you review uh, after a visit, you can consider additional questions you might want to write down. Keep in mind, your healthcare team may include a number of different professionals. Th these could include your primary care doctor, your medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, surgeon, nurses, nurse practitioner, practitioners or physician assistants, dietitians, geneticists, social workers, psychologists, pharmacists, a whole group of different people uh, as examples. And it's important for you to know what role each will play in your care, who will coordinate your care, how often you need to be seen by each member of your team, and make sure you always have lists of questions for each including ongoing discussions about the medicines you've been prescribed and if using supplements such as vitamins or medical marijuana as examples, review with the appropriate team member to make sure there aren't interactions. You should be reviewing symptoms you might have, including chronic or new symptoms and how they might be associated with your treatment or the disease itself. It's critical to maintain quality of life during treatment, and that's why you should document any side effects and the impact these might have on the quality of your life. You should be clearly defining your goals for your care, including the treatment, what you understand about your disease, who in your family will participate in your care, and who can communicate with your healthcare team. Um, I also want to conclude by just mentioning briefly uh, open notes. So now your medical record 
is generally very available to you for review. And this review can include clinician notes um, uh, as well as your test results. Uh, but you need to keep in mind that these records are documents using medical technolo uh, terminology which is critical to accurately describe procedures, other types of reports and communication, particularly among healthcare personnel. So there may be much that you don't understand when you're looking at these records. And so you should write down the questions you might have about what you are reading and address these directly with your healthcare Team. Also, if you feel something is incorrect or missing, you can also discuss those factors with your team. So communication is just critical throughout the, the whole process of your cancer care. And with that, I, I think I'll conclude my uh, remarks, and thanks so much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was a superb presentation. Excellent, um, and really um, covering a lot of key issues that people need to be aware of, and I think there'll be a lot of questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr, and Dr. Kerr is pathologist with Hospital Pathology Associates Division of Cytopathology, Pulmonary, Gynecologic, and Molecular Pathology, Alina Health Laboratories, Alina Health, Cancer Institute. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, benefits of biomarker testing and precision medicine, key questions to ask your healthcare team about biomarker testing. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Oh, thanks so much. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm just so excited to talk to you all today about pathology, which is what I do every day. Um, I'll try to explain how a pathology diagnosis helps inform which biomarkers need to be tested and how those biomarkers can also, in some cases, help pathologists to even be more accurate in cancer diagnosis. So in other words, pathologists now often need to integrate both the pathology information uh, and the molecular biomarkers to be providing that state-of-the-art diagnostics for, uh, for their patients. So first, I'll, I'll define pathology and what a pathologist does. So um, as Dr. Chris had described earlier, every time you get a blood test or a biopsy or a surgery, a, a pathology laboratory handles those specimens from you and, and performs tests on them. A pathologist is the doctor that leads this medical laboratory and is responsible for those test results. So there are many kinds of diagnostic technologies that a pathologist uses. First and foremost is a microscope, a microscopic diagnosis, where we look at the cancer cells under a microscope to determine the type of cancer, including where the cancer started, like a breast cancer or a colon cancer or a lung cancer. Those are all very different uh, in terms of where they start. And, um, and then after determining where the cancer started, uh, we also look at specific more specific classifications uh, or subtypes of cancer. So like in lung cancer, there are subtypes like small cell lung cancer or adenocarcinoma lung cancer, for example. 
determining the primary site of the cancer, where the cancer started, is the most important first step in determining the best therapy. Um, most available cancer therapies, with only a few exceptions, are studied knowing the type of cancer and the, the uh, Food and Drug Administration approvals for those therapies are usually based on a pathologist first determining the cancer type under a microscope with the use of pattern recognition and those special stains or immunohistochemistry that Dr. Chris described. Um, this process of making a cancer diagnosis for the cancer primary site and subtype usually takes a few days, but can take longer depending on uh, the tumor, if the tumor is common or if it's an, of an unusual or a rare type. Now, many types of cancer, like blood cancer, lymph node cancer, brain cancer, often require molecular biomarkers as part of the diagnosis. So just looking under a microscope at the pattern of the cancer cells isn't enough these days with the expansion of our understanding of biomarkers. So biomarkers can be another diagnostic technology that pathologists use as part of the diagnosis. Um, biomarkers could simply be what we call those immunohistochemical stains that we look at under a microscope to see what types of proteins the cancer is making. Uh, or sometimes the stain is designed to screen for a specific genetic mutation or alteration in the tumor. So biomarkers like estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2, PD-L1, P53, mismatch repair enzymes, those are all examples of immunostains that can be seen under a microscope. But some of these are also considered biomarkers that can be used to help with the diagnosis and for determining treatment. Other types of biomarkers are looking for more sophisticated things in the tumor, like genetic mutations in the DNA code of the tumor cells. Um, these days, uh, we're often doing the testing for these types of alterations by next-generation sequencing, which allows us to look for many biomarkers all at once, like DNA mutations or changes in the genetic sequence. Um, too many copies of a gene, which you might also hear called amplification of a gene, um, or rearrangements or fusions in the, um, in the genetic code where the, the DNA is rearranged in a specific way in, in just the tumor cells as opposed to the normal cells in the body, so rearrangements or fusions. Um, these changes can be detected by next-generation sequencing and can tell us what is causing the tumor cells to grow out of control, and if there's a matching drug that can shut down that pathway that's turned on abnormally in the tumor cells. And these uh, biomarker results can take several days to, to even several weeks, kind of depending on the complexity of the testing. So some of the larger genomic panels can take several weeks. Some of the simple tests might only take a few days. Um, when molecular biomarkers are needed for diagnosis, the pathologist will usually give a preliminary or provisional pathology report on the diagnosis and then issue a more refined diagnosis for the cancer after the biomarkers are back. So an example of this in my practice is for endometrial cancer. Um, now we make a diagnosis of endometrial cancer by looking at a tissue biopsy under a microscope and we give a type and a grade for the cancer. And then we get some other biomarker tests and provide a molecular subtype as well. 
So the final diagnosis might look something like endometrioid carcinoma grade 3, which is the microscopic diagnosis. And then also after the biomarker testing, we might assign a molecular subtype, such as mismatch repair deficient. And this combination of the pathology diagnosis and the molecular testing is now being studied in clinical trials of endometrial cancer to help determine which patients with otherwise the same microscopic diagnosis and cancer stage may benefit from either very aggressive treatment with chemotherapy and radiation therapy, or there might be some patients with certain molecular subtypes that may actually be better off with less aggressive treatment or just watchful waiting and no further treatment after surgery. So after all of this work in the laboratory, a cancer patient and their doctors receive a diagnostic report from the pathologist containing the final diagnosis for the tumor and any tests that were used to help make that diagnosis. In the cancer center where I work, there's a very specific rule set for which tests the pathologist orders based on the cancer type and stage so that every patient gets that basic nationally recommended testing needed to determine the integrated molecular and pathology diagnosis and the next choices for therapy. So be aware that these pathology and molecular reports can be viewed sometimes online and stored by you either in printed form or electronically. The diagnosis and biomarkers could even be important years down the road uh, when memory fades of your cancer diagnosis and treatment. And so I recommend keeping these reports available. Uh, and the reason for this is if I am, a, as a pathologist, looking at a biopsy of a lymph node for you, and I know that you have a history of a certain type of cancer, lymphoma or leukemia or a solid tumor like breast cancer, if that diagnosis was made in a different healthcare system that I don't have access to, and I know that prior diagnosis and those biomarkers, it, it helps me to be a lot more efficient in making a, a diagnosis for that current biopsy without having to start over from square one. Okay, and then uh, lastly, I'll cover some key questions to ask your cancer team regarding uh, pathology and biomarkers. So first, when your cancer is diagnosed, read over that pathology report and ask questions about what the diagnosis means. Sometimes a cancer is difficult for a pathologist to diagnose, and so you should ask your cancer team if your diagnosis might benefit from having a second opinion from another pathologist, just like having a, a medical second opinion. And then second, ask your oncologist whether all of the standard biomarkers for your diagnosis have been performed that could influence your next step in treatment. It is possible sometimes that not all of the recommended biomarkers could be performed because the biopsy was too small or other factors. And in those cases, you should ask your oncologist whether it would be worth trying another biopsy to get all of the biomarkers done or if you, you could even get a blood test, uh, as was previously mentioned, called liquid biopsy to get some of that information. So often the decision-making for first-line treatment when you're first diagnosed with cancer includes a relatively small number of simple biomarkers, where if you're on second or third-line treatments, um, the, the, the testing, the molecular biomarker testing could be more complex and require more extensive uh, test more comprehensive genomic panels. So I, I hope that um, this explanation has helped you understand a little bit better about your pathology diagnosis and 
biomarker testing that can inform shared decision-making with your team about treatments like surgery, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, or even no therapy and just watchful waiting. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. I'm turning it back over to you. Dr. Messner? Hello, yes. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was just a wonderful, wonderful presentation. Um, very comprehensive. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Just a, just a wonderful, um, wonderful presentation. And thank you. And I'm so happy to have a pathologist on this particular call. And our next speaker is Dr. Jason Rosenbaum. Dr. Rosenbaum is Medical Director, Kaiser Permanente, Northern California Regional Genomics Laboratory. And he also is representing uh, the Association for Molecular Pathology on this call today. Um, and um, so uh, it's my great pleasure now to introduce uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jason Rosenbaum, who will be talking to you about the Association for Molecular Pathology and their free programs and services, with particular emphasis on some of the programs and services they have available for the public. Um, thank you, Dr. Rosenbaum. Hi. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Thank you all for taking time out of your day. Um, as uh, described, uh, I am a molecular pathologist. Um, there are, uh, we have heard already today about um, at least two different kinds of anatomic pathology. Um, there are also pathologists that do all different sorts of lab testing, which has also been alluded to um, a, a few times today. Um, as I said, I am a molecular pathologist, and so I focus specifically on um, DNA and RNA testing and how that's evaluated and interpreted. The Association for Molecular Pathology is a medical professional society. Uh, it represents roughly 3,000 molecular diagnostic professionals and includes molecular pathologists like myself and Dr. Kerr, um, as well as qualified doctoral scientists who um, hold PhDs and medical laboratory scientists who may hold um, PhDs or other degrees. And all of these people um, work together to design, perform, and interpret molecular diagnostic tests. Um, the uh, AMP members represent all key areas of diagnostic medicine. We're talking today mostly about cancer but molecular testing is heavily involved in inherited disease as well, uh, as you might have assumed, uh, as well as infectious disease, which uh, it has been a prominent issue over the last couple of years, as we all know. Um, although our members perform tests for many different aspects of healthcare, um, including infectious disease and COVID-19, like I was alluding to a minute ago, uh, they are particularly involved, uh, or prominently involved, I should say, in ensuring high-quality clinical testing for cancer. 
uh, it's come up a, a few times today, but professionals um, from the Association for Molecular Pathology will perform molecular analyses for the purpose of diagnosing or and or classifying cancer. We develop and implement biomarker testing to help determine prognosis and the uh, availability and likelihood of um, effectiveness, of efficacy of uh, a particular treatment. Um, and uh, increasingly, we do testing to determine risk of development of cancer. And this can come in a couple of forms that we've talked a little bit about um, circulating D DNA from tumors in the blood. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to um, test the patient's inherited genes, not their cancer genetic um, makeup, but the makeup they inherited from their parents, to look at inherited risk for cancer, and that's becoming um, increasingly common as well. AMP is highly committed to patient care. We provide a number of clinical guidelines and other educational materials for pathologists, laboratory professionals, oncologists, and other ordering physicians. Um, in addition, we proactively engage in advocacy efforts to help improve insurance coverage for these tests. Um, AMP has partnered closely with the patient advocacy community, and we've launched recently a patient-centric website. This website includes an overview of routine activities that will occur in uh, a clinical molecular diagnostics lab, along with descriptions of different types of molecular tests, including DNA sequencing. Additionally, the AMP patient website provides free infographics, including Spanish translation, and regularly updates educational resources for patients including frequently asked questions about molecular diagnostics. The link to the patient-facing website will be distributed after the call today. Uh, we encourage you to look it over and to contact us with any suggestions for additional material or questions or points of clarification. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenbaum. That was a wonderful description, first of all, of uh, molecular pathology and, and what you're doing. And then also this um, patient, um, the outreach page that um, you've developed, the molecular medicine for, for patients um, page um, on the website. We will be sending everybody, um, usually it takes a few days, we'll be sending you a survey monkey evaluation, but it's an evaluation of the program, but in that we will include any resource that was given out during the program. So we'll give you the link to that program, um, the link to, um, to the um, Association for Molecular Pathology, their telephone number, all that information you'll be getting as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Rosenbaum. It's a wonderful presentation. And I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And I'm just going to say a few words. Um, about uh, cancer care services, and then we'll go, um, uh, we'll, we'll then soon go into the Q&A, so get your questions ready. Um, cancer care is a national 
um, nonprofit organization that provides free programs and services to people living with cancer. And what are those services? So we do have a HOPELINE, 1-800-813-4673. Um, and those are answered by oncology social workers. And we get many, many calls per day. And there is no queue when you call an oncology social worker. We have about 40 social workers, so there's plenty of social workers to answer your calls and take your questions. And the questions have to do with both practical and financial assistance. Um, with uh, online support groups, we offer quite a few online support groups. Um, with getting support from Cancer Care. Um, also, um, information about our education workshops, our publications, our website. Um, so um, if you go to our website, www.cancercare.org, it has a quite an extensive listing of all the different services we offer. They're all free. And they, um, for many people, they can make a tremendous difference. We also help with food insecurity issues, um, with helping people to find places um, both locally or regionally or nationally to get help with food or other problems that people may have. So I hope that helps. And now we're ready to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Krista to explain to you how to queue up and ask questions. Krista? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so this is a question um, for Dr. Benson, if you could address this um, in a general way. Can you get, or actually I'm going to ask Dr. Kerr, can you get molecular or DNA blood tests during your first line therapy in breast cancer in, in case you want to do a clinical trial or to see if your treatment is working? Do you always have to wait till your cancer metastasizes? That's a good question. Um, you know, I don't deal in the breast cancer world very much, but I can sort of speak to that um, more. I deal more with lung cancer these days. And it sort of depends um, in the lung cancer world whether the cancer can be removed by surgery or um, if the patient will wait to have treatment um, before they have additional surgery. And so a lot of times patients who have their cancer removed from surgery aren't going to need as many uh, biomarkers done. Uh, and so they sort of have these, you know, simple biomarkers like ERPR and HER2, and then they, you know, have their cancer removed and they go into um, observation. And so there's really no need um, at that initial phase to have those, have that extensive biomarker testing done. And usually it's safe for when there's a recurrence. And, and the reason for that is if there's a recurrence, the tumor actually might be different um, when it comes back than when it, when it started, and so we like to have a, a current snapshot of it. Now, one of the things um, that's becoming more popular with following cancer over time, and maybe this is what, what the questioner was alluding to, is um, following patients for recurrence. And depending on the tumor type, um, the, the evidence is not as good for, for some tumors as others, but the idea is that you basically look for mutations that are present in the cancer at diagnosis and then look for those mutations in the blood over time. So there are some companies out there that offer this type of testing um, and looking for recurrence. And 
you know, there are promising research studies out there that show that this might be a good approach. Um, but really, the standard of care is still looking at other blood biomarkers other than DNA, like um, CEA is uh, a biomarker that's used in some types of tests, CA125 in gynecologic cancers, and imaging um, are sort of the mainstays of, of following patients for recurrence. And these DNA tests that are out there are, are very promising and, and often used, but are sort of in their infancy in terms of of um, what we know of how to use them in looking for recurrences of cancer versus some of these other older tests. So what I recommend is you know, talk with your cancer team about those biomarker tests and whether they think they're useful in your, in your specific instance. I hope that helped answer in sort of a general way. Thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Chris. Um, I have stage four lung cancer metastasized to the brain. I have a mutated gene, so I respond well to the targeted drug, Elancensa. I will never be cured, but it is manageable. What if the targeted medicine stops working? What are my options? Could you answer this, Dr. Um, Chris, in just a general way in terms of uh, biomarkers and testing and things like that? Yeah, so um, it, uh, it what we like to do is, if at all possible, I think as Dr. Kerr hinted before, it's very helpful to, to do another biopsy of the uh, cancer in your body at the time the cancer grows again. Uh, sometimes by uh, doing another analysis on that tissue, we can learn how the nature of your cancer has changed under the effect of the treatment you have uh, received. And sometimes it can point us to a new uh, kind of genetic damage, which could also be a target for therapy. So if a biopsy can be done, uh, a tissue biopsy actually is preferred. Uh, if not, you could consider also getting a blood biopsy uh, of DNA. Now, it's a little trickier uh, if the, uh, the spot of cancer is only in the brain, because obviously it's a, another uh, level of difficulty to recommend or undergo a biopsy of the brain. But in general, you biopsy. If you can't biopsy, you might do tissue. And I must say that in the, if for some reason you don't have uh, the ability to, to do another biopsy and you don't have an obvious new targeted therapy, that chemotherapy can be very, very effective. You know, in general, people that have cancer with a, a target gene are more sensitive to chemo, particularly with EGFR. And for like the ALK gene, certain drugs are better, like pemetrexid. So there is that option of uh, chemotherapy. Uh, if indeed uh, you cannot find a new target or you, or you can't do a biopsy to find a target. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I hope that's helpful to our participants. I'm sure it was. Oh, thank you. Um, so uh, for Dr. Um, Benson, can you get molecular or DNA blood tests during your first line therapy? Oh, no, we did that. I'm sorry, we did that question, right? I'm sorry. Oh, this is a good question. Um, how, this is for Dr. Benson. How do I get this biomarker testing done? Is there a list of good biomarker labs to 
to do the biomarker testing. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so uh, with biomarker testing, it's critical to uh, speak with your oncologist in terms of what needs to be done. Um, and um, some big centers, particularly university medical centers, actually have the capacity to do their uh, a complete genomic profile on individuals. Um, but um, it is important to understand what type of testing you need for a specific uh, disease and whether uh, it should be done by tissue or blood or both. And also important, what we've been talking about is what we see in the tumor, but there are individuals who may have an inherited risk for their tumor, and that's looking for uh, genetic changes, what you're born with. And there, uh, there's the ability to do blood tests to see if you carry an inherited risk. So these type of questions need to be addressed with the oncologist in terms of the type of test and where the test should be uh, uh, completed, whether it's within the institution or sent out to one of the a number of different companies that do these tests. But this is a, a routine discussion in the oncology office. I, I have these discussions uh, every day I'm in clinic patients. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I also want to remind everyone that we have a part two of this program, which will take place on March 4th, understanding the different names for biomarker testing and their role in selecting the best treatment for you. So, and it makes all the difference in the world. So um, if you haven't already signed up for part two, please do. Um, and one other question for Dr. Benson. Is AI being used in analyses or biomarkers and biopsies? Uh, well, that's uh, a technical question. Maybe we should have Dr. Kerr uh, mm -hmm. answer. I will say, though, certainly in the center it's been used, including with uh, imaging, with things like hands. But let's hear from Dr. Kerr, who's the expert. Thank you, Dr. Kerr. Uh -huh. Sure. So um, artificial intelligence is starting to be incorporated into pathology in sort of early ways. Um, one of the uh, sort of older examples of, of artificial intelligence in pathology is with pap screening tests in um, cervical cancer. Um, there's computer uh, aids that help us to find the cells that we should be looking at under the microscope more closely than, you know, because there might be 10,000 cells on a slide and there's, you know, maybe five that we need to look at closely and so the computer can help point us to those cells that we should be taking a look at more closely. Um, I've actually been involved in some projects with other types of cytology where we use the same thing. So we, um, like we would in a pap test, the computer helps us to find those cells. And um, as Dr. Benson sort of alluded to, that same sort of artificial intelligence is being used in imaging to point radiologists to areas that they should be looking at on scans more closely. But still a human is having to look at what the computer points out and, 
and refine that. Now I think in the future um, we might be seeing it incorporated even more so that it helps pathologists to be uh, more accurate. So the computer might sort of generate the ideas that the computer might sort of generate what the diagnosis should be, and then a, then a human looks at that and makes sure it makes sense. Now in um, biomarker testing, like sequencing, um, we're, we are starting to use some artificial intelligence to help us figure out um, what complex molecular profiles are doing. So, um, you know, we used to test for individual genes all individually and kind of think about them as matching with therapies individually. But it's hard for the human brain to kind of put together how those biomarkers um, fit together in a patient's cancer. And so computers can sort of help us look at gene pathways um, to help interpret that data in a more comprehensive way. And so I think those are some of the ways that we're starting to use artificial intelligence, both in pathology and imaging and cancer and biomarkers, but it's, it's still very early. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm going to ask each of our speakers just to provide a minute takeaway um, uh, that you'd like to give. I'm going to start with Dr. Chris, and then Dr. Benson, Dr. Kerr, and Dr. Rosenbaum. So Dr. Chris, do you want to go first? Um, I uh, just want everyone listening today uh, to uh, know how uh, useful all these different biomarkers are also how complicated all of these uh, biomarkers are to understand. Um, and it's absolutely critical that everything be used to try to make the best decisions, but it's also critical that um, you need to understand and ask questions about this. And please, please, it's very complicated. It's something you're not familiar with. Don't be afraid to ask and ask again until uh, you understand and get the information you need. Thank you, Dr. Chris. And Dr. Benson? Uh, I totally agree with Dr. Chris. The incredible complexity, and also this is very much a fast-track evolving field. And so this is going to be a continuum of discussion, particularly since as we learn more about tumor biology, it's led to the development of many new drugs. Uh, another big area, such as uh, immune therapy, uh, is is expanding, and we're learning more and more about the immune system. So these are constant discussions, and over time, to see how these results, uh, these changes in our understanding of human biology, lead to new treatments. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Benson. And uh, Dr. Kerr. Well, thank you. Um, so what I like to tell patients uh, about pathology and cancer reports to remember is to, to keep track of those diagnoses and make sure that if you go to a new doctor, you know, you're in between uh, treatments, you're in a different healthcare system, that those doctors also know about your history and, and your pathology. Um, it makes things so much easier down the line should you have a new spot on a scan or something and, you know, you have to have a biopsy of that. It's so important for the pathologist looking at that biopsy to know what your pathology history is and maybe even be able to request those prior slides to look at under a microscope in comparison to what you have now. Um, it just helps us to be a lot more accurate in um, making a diagnosis 
uh, down the line if, if we know what you had before. So try to keep track of those and make sure that your current doctors know about your history. Thank you so much. And Dr. Rosenbaum? Yeah, um, I think uh, the message I would convey um, is that uh, genetics and genomics are uh, relatively new fields. Um, I believe the structure of DNA was only elucidated in the 1950s. Uh, and since then, we've, um, we're now at a place where we can sequence all six billion nucleotides of a human genome in about a week for about $100. And um, with respect to uh, speaking to your physician or getting a biomarker report, um, most doctors uh, do not have the sophistication or the level of gene genetics training that the people on this call may have. And so it's entirely possible that um, your personal physician uh, is not able um, to, uh, to manage genetic data um, in the way that would be optimal. Now, that is not a knock on physicians. I went to medical school. You have a lot to learn. And genetics for most doctors is only just one thing that has to be covered. Um, but my summary point would be that there are physicians who are specifically dedicated to diagnosing and understanding diseases that are based on genetics. Um, and they are represented by the Association for Molecular Pathology. And so if you are having any trouble, if you are confused at all about what's going on, and you are not finding a conversation um, to be helpful with your personal medical professional, um, please use the resources available at the Association for Molecular Pathology website. We will be sending all that information out to everybody so you'll have it, so you'll have it there available. Um, so. Thank you all. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. And I do, I just want to acknowledge that, um, that we had many questions, of course, and we couldn't take all of your questions. So I want to go over this with you. Um, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question in queue that we didn't get to, a didn't get to ask, um, and for those of you who are thinking of a question, please, all of you, take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. And ask them your questions. And I think, um, as um, uh, I think Dr. Benson said, ask your question over and over again until you get the answer. I think Dr. Chris and Dr. Benson, I think all of you said, <laughs> if you don't, Dr. Rosenbaum, all of you said, um, uh, you know, said that. Be sure to, um, Dr. Kerr, be sure to ask that question over and over again until you get the answer that you need. And you do have the Association of Molecular Pathology as a resource for you if you're really you know, confused, don't understand everything, because they really have a patient page. And you'll be getting that link to that page as well. So you'll be able to, um, to get all this information from them, which is really so unique to have that, that information. Um, again, um, I, I don't want anyone of you to leave this call feeling you're alone. I want you to know you're now part of our community of support. You have the American, um, the Association of Molecular Pathology of Cancer Care, 
You have your healthcare team, which as many of our speakers have said, consists of so many different people that, um, that you definitely will have a team of people to help you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.